I'm sitting in the cafeteria of the United Nations Conference Center in Bonn, Germany, about to dive into a plate of vegetarian lasagna. Up until the year 2000, this building was the seat of German government, the Bundestag, Germany's federal parliament. Today, the old Bundestag Rotunda is being used for a workshop on climate-smart agriculture, one of three key meetings taking place at mid-year climate talks here. My lasagna, or food in general, is a key focus of these talks because about 30% of all the greenhouse gases that mankind emits are generated to feed us. Farmers emit greenhouse gases when they till soil or graze cattle or chop forests to make way for farms. The Paris Climate Agreement is an umbrella under which nearly all efforts to end climate change are being developed. It's an agreement among governments, but it includes so-called non-state actors, like environmental NGOs that stand up for the environment and multinational corporations that buy commodities from farmers and turn it into food. For decades, NGOs have been pressurizing companies to produce and procure soy, beef, and other commodities in ways that don't lead to deforestation. Hundreds of companies have responded by pledging to reduce their impact on forests. But there's a catch. Very few NGOs, and even fewer companies, agree on what exactly constitutes a forest, let alone what constitutes deforestation or zero deforestation for that matter. It turns out to be a pretty sticky issue, because trees come in all shapes and sizes, and all forests are, to some extent, shaped by man. Individual countries do have their own definitions of what constitutes a forest, usually specific heights and density and usages, but those definitions are all over the map as are definitions of degradation, conversion, natural ecosystems, and restoration. And we haven't even gotten into the issue of indigenous people and forest people who have lived in harmony with forests for centuries, but alter these forests nonetheless. Confronted with this hodgepodge, companies threw up their hands. How can we deliver something if you guys can't even agree on how to define it, they seem to be asking. NGOs, however, have called their bluff and created a framework for holding companies accountable for their impacts on nature. They called it the Accountability Framework. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how those impacts are accounted for and how companies are held accountable thanks to something called the Accountability Framework, which was formally unveiled last week in the Dutch city of Utrecht. 
My guest, Jeff Milder, is one of the people pulling that initiative together. My name is Jeff Milder. I'm the Director of Global Programs at Rainforest Alliance. And Rainforest Alliance is an international nonprofit organization that envisions a planet where people and nature thrive in harmony. Rainforest Alliance is also one of the dozen or so NGOs leading the creation of the accountability framework. And I caught up to him last week at an adorable little beer garden in the Dutch city of Utrecht after he had formally launched the framework. To give you an idea of why this framework is needed, let me give you some numbers from my own organization, Forest Trends. Forest Trends has an initiative called Supply Change, which tracks corporate sustainability actions. Supply Change identified 865 companies that are exposed to deforestation risk, meaning they make the bulk of their money by producing commodities that are associated with deforestation. Of these 865 companies, however, just 72, or 8%, have clear zero deforestation commitments, while 484 of them, or 56%, have some sort of commitments to source their commodities sustainably, and those 72 are included in the 484. Now, don't get hung up on the numbers. The point is that we have a gradient of good, bad, and middling companies and that 44% of the companies that are most responsible for this mess are on the bad side. They've made no commitments at all to improve the way they do business. It's pretty clear then that a lot of companies are just blowing smoke, basically using the lack of consensus to avoid responsibility. But others seem sincere. For them, and for governments looking to develop effective regulations, we need some sort of consensus on what works and what doesn't, as well as some mechanism for improving that framework and aligning it with the Paris Agreement. So I caught up to Jeff at a place called Landhus in der Stadt, which is in Park Oog, <laughs> I love Dutch names, in Utrecht, and asked him if he could tell me what the accountability framework is and how it came to be. Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, the Accountability Framework Initiative is a partnership among 14 environmental and social nonprofit organizations from around the world, representing both global perspectives and also many different countries in the tropics. And these are all organizations that care deeply about the effects of our supply chains on the environment and human rights. Uh, So let me introduce a term, which I'll call an ethical supply chain. And an ethical supply chain, in the view of our coalition, is a supply chain um, that produces products that don't harm people or the environment. For instance, do not result in the loss of tropical forests or the use of slave labor or the uh, grabbing of lands owned and occupied by indigenous peoples. And about 10 years ago, a remarkable thing happened. There, We started to reach an emerging consensus, especially in Europe and North America, that it really was not acceptable for consumer countries to enjoy products like cookies and chocolate and chicken and shampoo and other things produced out of tropical commodities as a result of these impacts, as a result of the loss of our tropical forests, which are so critical for stabilizing climate, forced labor, child labor, and other things like that. So we started to see major companies um, make commitments to ethical supply chains, to halting deforestation, to protecting human rights, 
And we started seeing this around 2009, 2010. And in the next five or six years, there was a huge ramp up in these commitments until now, um, according to tracking by supply chain, more than 500 companies have made more than 800 commitments on these issues. And for groups like mine, Rainforest Alliance and others, this was terrific because what we had been arguing should happen for years was finally happening. There was consensus that we needed to address these issues everywhere they occur. But what there wasn't was consensus on how to measure them, right? I mean, that was the big problem. What there wasn't was consensus about how to implement and measure these commitments. And that soon began to become apparent, even in some ways that, that might at first seem pretty trivial, like how do we define deforestation? But if you can't agree on how you define deforestation, you can't observe it, you can't monitor it, you can't measure it, you can't hold companies accountable for having it or not having it in their supply chain. So our coalition identified what we call the implementation gap, the gap between the good intent of these commitments versus the reality of actions that were not being taken and results that were not being achieved. And we launched this initiative to address the implementation gap. And we did that because, um, in our view, if these commitments can be completely fulfilled, we will go a long way to addressing these urgent environmental and human rights issues. Mm-hmm. And is now, the, and this was it was interesting to to watch the emergence of your uh, your organization. I was working with Forest Trends all this time, and I remember when we set up the supply change initiative that you just alluded to. And the the idea there was, oh, these companies have these zero deforestation commitments, and we're gonna now we're gonna start tracking the progress they were report towards delivering on their commitments. We very quickly found that a lot of companies that had said we're going to have zero deforestation supply chains by 2020, a lot of those commitments disappeared from their their reports. They stopped reporting on them, but what they were doing was reporting things that were achievable and quantifiable and verifiable, such as a certain percentage of our commodity supply chains of individual commodities being certified among according to one standard or another. So it was kind of, they they looked into their toolbox and they said, what do we have? And they found these standards that were created for something a little bit different. Can we maybe go into the history of these, of the standards a bit and talk about how this evolved and how we got here? Uh, Yeah, so in the early days of these commitments, um, many companies made use of of certification programs, and um, many of you have have probably seen these programs on the store shelves, groups like uh, Fairtrade and others, that uh, provided... um, already uh, a framework for implementing commitments like this because they required already these supply chains to address critical issues around human rights, forests, and other things. One of the challenges we face, though, is that these companies have diverse businesses. They source many different products from many different places. So certification provided part of the solution. But what our coalition really wanted to see is that these responsible practices, these ethical practices were mainstreamed across the entirety of a company and on the ground across the entirety of say a landscape where cocoa is produced or palm oil is produced. So we recognized that some additional tools were going to be needed and that we needed to have um, a common standard. We needed to have a common reference for what good implementation looked like. And what we set out to do was to create that common reference so that wherever a company is doing business, whatever they're sourcing, they can apply this across their entire business and they can achieve these ethical practices across their entire business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, just, just to clarify for our listeners, uh, one of the things that I found really confusing at first was the number that you threw out 
uh, at the very start, you said 500 companies had 800 commitments. And that's that goes right to the heart of this problem because companies were making commitments by supply chain and they would look at something like palm oil where the roundtable on sustainable palm oil has been active for a long time. 20% of supplies are already certified as sustainable. So they were like, oh, we can do this. Something like soy, the kind of newer, you know, they, they, had, they had to use different mechanisms, but that's why we have one company might have three different commitments in three different commodities. And there was no way for the company to say that we as an entity are deforestation free because something is always going to be sneaking into our supply chains, right? That's the... That's right. And these global supply chains are very complex. So if you go to the supermarket and you buy one of your favorite products, like for instance, uh, say Dove soap or Breyers ice cream, two brands um, owned by Unilever's, it was one of the companies to make an early commitment. Those products may have palm oil in them that Unilever purchased from a trader that was purchased from a uh, producer that may have then been purchased from hundreds or thousands of individual small-scale farmers. There's no way Unilever can have a direct view into those activities on the ground. So what we were looking at was the need to develop a whole new set of implementation and monitoring systems. Um, how does that signal? that we want product without deforestation, without forced labor, without child labor. How does that, get sig how does that signal get passed up the supply chain um, to the refiners, to the mills, to the producers? And then how does evidence of good performance get passed back down the supply chain to the commodity manufacturers, to the retailers, um, ultimately to the consumer? And at the same time, there need to be incentives, there need to be supports, there need to be control mechanisms. Um, there's a lot of details that seem perhaps very banal, but in fact are critical to making this whole thing work. How did you go about doing this? You come in, you see this, this big mess, <laughs> and you're like, wow, how do, we, how do we get this thing together? Well, the, the one word answer to that is consensus. And um, it, it, maybe it sounds simple, but it was quite challenging. We approach consensus from the standpoint of um, a coalition of civil society organizations. But ultimately then we designed um, a process of developing this framework that involved many, many other stakeholders. So we consulted closely with producers throughout the tropics, um, with companies, with government representatives, with other civil society organizations. But we started with civil society because... And that's NGOs, environmental NGOs. NGOs, yeah. uh, thanks. Um, much of the impetus for making these commitments came from NGOs who said an ethical society is one where we don't destroy our forests, where we don't doom future generations to climate change, where we don't um, enslave people so that we in the developing world can um, enjoy um, cheap consumer products. But after having applied that pressure, NGOs then were sending somewhat mixed messages to companies about what exactly they had to do to be responsible. And we found that that um, energy, that sort of moral authority, legitimacy was being dissipated a little bit for lack of a common voice. Mm -hmm. So we came together and said, look, let's try to put together our minor differences and focus on the fundamental issues and try to come forward with a consensus position and practical implementation guide for what an ethical supply chain commitment is and an ethical supply chain is. And specifically in that consensus building process, there's a few things that we had to do. One is we had to break down the silos between the environmental worldview and the human rights worldview. And these issues intersect um, very forcefully on the ground. For instance, many of the world's forests are 
owned or occupied by indigenous peoples and local communities. So yes, you want forest protection. You also want to respect the rights of those peoples, which includes self-determination around their lands. So these issues need to be developed in tandem. And we brought together these two communities and said, look, let's start at first principles. Let's mm. discuss why we're approaching these issues from the angle we are. And then let's see if we can find the common ground. And in the end, we were able to have our diverse perspectives be an asset for converging, I think, on really good solutions, on solutions that will be really lasting on the ground. You went not only for different groups within the environmental sector, but you went with environmental NGOs, human rights NGOs. I mean, how did you go about finding this consensus and I mean or is it was it easier than I think is it something that when you because that's the other thing that seems to happen you start talking to people you think you disagree and then you realize oh we actually have we actually have a huge area of agreement so let's focus on that how I mean can you maybe talk about how that got whittled down well I have to say the members of our coalition have been fantastic um, the process wasn't always easy um, we had some um, good process facilitation help from our colleagues at the Meridian Institute but a can lot you tell of us a little bit about the Meridian Institute because I've I, I've actually seen them their work and I'm also really impressed now they, they basically just they're just very good at getting people to coordinate they they they, they convene these uh, meetings and they you know they you know, they're communications people, but what what do they do? Yeah, they're another nonprofit organization, and their their um, their work is all around bringing people together to, um, to to find solutions in areas around environment, agriculture, and, and related topics. And uh, you know, I mean, a lot of this stuff is pretty basic when you talk about principled negotiation and starting with first principles and things like that. But um, if there's a will to start by understanding one another's perspectives, that goes a long way. Um, and as an example, uh, the discourse around human rights comes from a very different starting place as the discourse around climate and forests which is strongly rooted in the science around the need to protect forests, around biodiversity loss. Human rights starts from the standpoint of the inalienable idea of what it means to be human and what rights are associated with that. And a whole um, discourse and body of international law evolved around that through, through the UN, uh, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, different instruments around the rights of indigenous peoples. And we had some meetings where we really just essentially educated one another about these different starting points, different perspectives. And with that basis, both sides, all sides, um, all groups, had full respect for the validity of the other perspective. And then it simply became more of a technical process of saying, great, we share this common set of objectives mm -hmm. that both of all of our organizations came in with. Now we're just going to solve the problem. We're going to come up with essentially a you know a set of, of guidelines that this speaks to to you know to all of these normative references. You, you you agreed on the goals, which were these I guess these four core principles that you have. The uh, what is it again? There's uh, so our the the. Um, or three the objectives addressed yeah. in the framework are yeah. to um, halt deforestation associated with supply chains, halt the conversion of other natural ecosystems, and to respect the rights of indigenous peoples, local communities, and workers. Mm -hmm. Then you had to get the companies involved, and you also had to come to a consensus on what constitutes a forest and what constitutes deforestation. Uh, how did that progress? Is this you know, because you had all these other initiatives going on too. You had the Forest Stewardship Council had their high conservation value forest definition, and then you know you you had these other 
these initiatives kicking around where people would say this this is a forest and this is just some trees. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. And 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 it, anyone who's looked at different kinds of forests, you, you do quickly appreciate that it's not that easy because mm. you see a cluster of trees and you say, "Is that a forest? Is that not a forest?" Is it a park? It, yeah. It, yeah. Um, so it's it's not as it's not as trivial as it sounds. But yeah, on the on the forest question, I think part of part of the discussion we had was, um, does there just need to be one definition? Are there different definitions for different purposes? And if there's different definitions for different purposes, can they coexist in a way that they don't clash? Can they coexist in a way that they still all fit together? Um, because ultimately what we want to avoid is confusion. What we want to avoid is people citing different facts and figures and no agreement on who's right and who's wrong. And uh, with, with the definition framework we came up uh, the definitional framework we came up within the accountability framework, um, I think we've managed to do that, to reconcile the idea of forests that's used by governments, uh, for instance, to guide land use regulation, versus the idea of forests put forward by um, the nonprofit community and adopted by companies, which is really focused on the avoiding the loss of natural forests. So we're talking about tropical rainforests, but also tropical savannas and temperate forests, both primary and secondary forests. That's what we're talking about, the protection of those natural forests. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so now you've got this agreement on definition of forests, and you had the, the companies the companies were, were more just waiting for this consensus to come to them, right? They were, how, act, right how, how active were, were companies like Unilever and them? How active were they in this process? Or again, were they just waiting for the signal, or were they in, involved in the talks? Some companies wanted to be more involved than others. Mm -hmm. um, companies uh, are faced with needing to engage in tens, even hundreds of sustainability platforms. And of course, there's no always new issues coming up, uh, like ocean plastics now is a big one. So these companies don't have all the time in the world. So, so many of them were involved in our consultative process, provided a lot of fantastic input. And also, part of what we learned and I think appreciated in, in all respect for the work that they've been doing is uh, innovation is coming from companies because there's there's many well-intentioned companies and people within them who have taken their commitment seriously and they've made a lot of changes and they've learned a lot over the last several years of doing that and we wanted our framework to be very practical not abstract we mm -hmm. wanted it to reflect really the best of the best mm -hmm. of how to do this so where companies have tried things and succeeded we want to reflect that, where they tried things and failed. We also wanted to take note of that. Um, so the input from companies was critical, I think, to the practicality of the product that we've developed here. One thing we found difficult in talking to companies is individuals within the companies want to share their lessons and they want to share their failures because that's where you learn. But companies that are doing the right thing are often a little bit reticent to talk about things that didn't work because they're so afraid of somehow it, it getting misinterpreted or used against them. Did you encounter that at all, or did you find companies were pretty willing to say, you know what, we tried that and it, it blew up, or or was that done? Was that all? Did they treat, try to keep that off the record? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a it's a it's a natural and and logical reaction of companies because um, in this space of ethical supply chains, um, even now, you know, pressure is applied still by the nonprofit community by um, exposing instances where companies are not behaving in ways that are that are deemed responsible. So they, they do tend to be cautious about that. 
But nevertheless, um, there are now a lot of pretty open problem-solving oriented forums around forests and around human rights, where I find the companies do speak more candidly. Um, sometimes those are run like the under, innovation forum under the innovation yeah. forum. Uh, different events run under Chatham House rules where. Um, people can can speak without the fear their words will be attributed to them. And we need spaces like that because yeah. otherwise these problems are way too complex to solve if we can't be honest with one another. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about the framework? We're talking about it in kind of vague terms. What, what, it, what exactly is in the framework? Sure. So the framework is a set of principles, definitions, and guidance. So it's, it's a set of documents um, to help guide the ethical supply chain journey, which is what we call the process first of setting strong ethical supply chain commitments. So what is a company going to commit to um, as, their, as their goals in the environmental and human rights space? The second is taking action and taking action both on the ground where commodities are produced, so in plantations, in forests, in processing mills, and also through the management of supply chains. So mm -hmm. I gave the example of Unilever. How do they manage their suppliers? How do they monitor? How do they report information? And then the third part of the journey is demonstrating progress. And this is so critical. And the framework details credible approaches for monitoring, for verification, for reporting. If a company is going to make claims, how do you make sure those claims are truthful and credible? So it's that journey mm -hmm. that the framework details. And all of the materials for the framework are available on our website, which is accountability-framework.org. And we've tried to really break it down to orient it according to some simple starting questions and let people dig into greater detail as their interest dictates. Yeah, I was going to say I was really impressed with the site. I've been, I've been following this, and it, you know, it was always coming out to us in this kind of complicated documentation. And uh, when did you pull that? That site came together fairly recently, right? Um, it did. So we, we just launched it Wednesday, and mm -hmm. it's based on um, the final versions of the okay. framework documents that our coalition reached consensus on um, within the past month or so. Maybe we could look at it briefly, and we could just talk sure. a little bit about if... Let me pull up this here. We'll get to the site in a bit, but first I'd like to thank another NGO, the Environmental Defense Fund, which is helping me cover my costs for episodes related to deforestation. They're making this episode possible, as is my own employer, Forest Trends, because I interviewed Jeff as part of an article I'm writing for Ecosystem Marketplace, which is a publication of Forest Trends. But you may have noticed it's been over a month since my last episode, and that's because I just haven't had the bandwidth to produce these at any level of quality while doing my day job as well. If you'd like to hear more Bionic Planet, then you can help me produce more and better episodes by giving me a solid five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That matters because the more stars I get, the more ears I get, and the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. Better yet, you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet, where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards, they automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. 
So I'm on the overview section here. So this is you. You you get to the site, and I guess you get, does it open with overview? I think it does, right? Do you need to? Uh, do you want to sit down or? Yeah. So um, on the site, when start on the home page, if you go to the overview of the framework, one of the things this describes is how the framework is meant to be used. And um, as I described earlier, um, originally, really, private sector is a key audience for this. Um, we're really trying to provide greater clarity. Um, consolidation of best practices around the ethical supply chain journey. So private sector are a primary audience, um, but there's other important audiences as well. So there's other um, groups within the nonprofit sector that are doing advocacy. They're working with companies on implementation, or they might be playing an assessment or watchdog function. And having the framework as a common benchmark for success for good practice is very critical. And we heard, for instance, from some of the nonprofit organizations in Ghana, where I helped run one of the consultation workshops, that for them, having something like this that they can refer to when the government comes out with a proposed policy or when a company is proposing a concession development is very helpful for them because then they're not just one lone voice in Ghana. They can refer back to an international norm right. and many other organizations that stand behind their position and they can say, look, this is out of sync with with what the rest of the world thinks ought to, ought to, ought to happen in these places. Mm -hmm. We also have had some interesting early conversations with government about how some of the elements of the framework might eventually make it into public policy. Because of course, the work to date with companies um, is being done mostly on a voluntary basis, and that's terrific. But if we want to get to full scale with these ethical practices, ultimately the way to do it might be to get some of that into the regulatory realm. Yeah, I mean, that's something it's interesting, and I'm sure it comes up at the Innovation Forum events, because I've had so many off-the-record conversations with people in companies who are all saying, Voluntary commitments aren't going to go much further, and mm. we need we need to get governments to impose some kind of mandatory requirements or license to operate or import restrictions and stuff. So that's that's right because doing business uh, where the playing field isn't level is is usually harder than when the playing field is level, and, yeah. and government plays that leveling function. Yeah, it came up over and over again that it costs more to produce certified. Well, not always. Sometimes certification, you know actually comes with better management, which actually reduces costs. But mm. a lot of times it ends up increasing the cost of production and you're not getting any premium. Another part of the site that I might direct people to is under the framework, if you go to the ethical supply chain journey, mm -hmm. um, this elaborates the steps that I was just describing around yeah. setting commitments, taking action, and demonstrating progress. So if you were to click, for instance, say you're a company that has made a strong commitment, that's great. What are you going to do now? Click on Take Action. And what you'll see is a number of different um, uh, activities, sets mm -hmm. of activities that you would need to take in order to actually take action and implement your commitment. Say you've already done some traceability and you know where your supply is coming from, but some of your suppliers have some problems. There's some active deforestation, there might be some human rights violations. So you're going to click on engage, support, and manage suppliers. Then you'll see some specific questions. What systems should my company have in place? to manage and support suppliers to fulfill supply chain commitments. And we refer the user out to different sections of the framework right. um, because it really is meant to be a practical implementation guide. 
um, and and this is the the navigation we've set up to help make it uh, pretty user friendly. Yeah, it's so it, it's so clear and it's so intuitive. So where do we go from here? Now you've got this you've got this thing you've got this this exists. These NGOs have signed off on it. If companies have signed off too, or is it uh, like who who has agreed to it? Who's and 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 who needs to be pulled in still? Um, so yeah, the 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 framework reflects the consensus of the 14 nonprofit organizations in our coalition. And now our focus is shifting to really helping to promote and support the broad application of the framework. And that goes back to the different user groups that I just mentioned. With the private sector, um, there's a number of individual companies that the members of our coalition are speaking with. Many of our members like WWF and ProForest and many others already collaborate with companies to try to um, institute better practices and the framework provides um, a tool for them, a way of engaging with them, a way of directing them to specific practices that they might like to encourage them to implement. So we are looking for, for companies to really use this, apply it, to uh, set new commitments, to refresh their commitments, to improve their monitoring systems, to improve reporting so that there's mm -hmm. more transparency back to the rest of the world about what they're doing. We're also engaging with a number of industry associations that are playing a very important role to help different sectors um, solve problems collectively. In the soy sector, in the palm sector, in cocoa, groups are set up to do this and it's fantastic and we, we hope that we can support those groups to move faster by building on the consensus-based principles and guidelines that we've developed. Now Ceres has already come out with an investor brief encouraging people, encouraging investors to pressurize companies to or to encourage maybe is a better word but to you know to encourage companies to align along these principles have you been following that initiative that effort are you involved in that or is that something they just did on their own um, yes, we've been working closely with a number of organizations in the, in the reporting and assessment space, including uh, series, including supply change, including Global Canopy Program, um, CDP Forests, and others. And these groups play a critical role because they um, send the accountability signal back to companies mm -hmm. and they, they actually drive accountability through metrics. And the change that we see the accountability framework can help bring about here is to create a single common signal to companies yeah. about what they ought to be doing. Because if companies are being evaluated according to many different metrics, it's not clear to them that doing one thing versus another thing is going to really give them much, much business advantage. If it's clear to companies that NGOs, investors, and their buyers are all looking for the same thing, and they're going to be graded and judged on those things, that's a pretty compelling case that they ought to invest in those things. And as we help strengthen alignment between these different assessment and accountability initiatives, we think that that strong signal will really start to coalesce in the next year or two. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I know that my, the team at Supply Change, uh, they're already talking about realigning because you know they they've that's been a struggle from the start was you know what do we track because it just these indicators were proliferating and now it's okay we can we can we can track companies' progress towards these very specific and agreed upon targets rather than you know doing well this NGO likes this and you know who's doing that that's right and the interesting thing about accountability is it can be good or it can be bad depending on whether you are a good actor or a bad actor. <laughs> right. 
uh, if you're an A student, accountability is great. You wouldn't want grades to be randomly assigned if you were a top student. Mm -hmm. And up to now, we haven't had that clarity. We haven't yeah. had that consistency in how grades are assigned to companies. But now we will. Yeah, it's also been a challenge that some companies are clearly doing something, but they're doing it in ways that don't conform to recognized. And a company I'll use as an example, I'll use two, Mars and Dannon, simply because I know of the work that they're doing where they're they're helping these small farmers, you know, implement agroforestry practices, has a very, very powerful impact on the farmers and on deforestation, takes pressure, lots of things, but it there's no standards that they're employing. So they had nothing that they could report that was standardized. Does the accountability framework capture that kind of activity or is that still too one-off? It, it absolutely would. It creates um, an umbrella framework um, under which a variety of different implementation practices could fall. So um, a company could use an off-the-shelf program like certification or they might realize that no they need to do something more tailored but if you're going to do something more tailored, you can still do it in a way that conforms to this agreed-upon set of rules. And in doing so, you can demonstrate that you're doing what needs to be done to be a responsible actor. Mm -hmm. Do you see the sustainability framework uh, becoming something that consumers can use, or, or is it Accountability more framework. What did I call it? Sustainability framework. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, do, you think, do, you, do you think the accountability framework could be something that consumers would be aware of, or do you see it really as something like a, an engine standard that you know, we, we don't know when we buy cars, but everybody who works in manufacturing knows about it? I think the engine standard is, is, is a pretty good analogy, or Intel Inside, or, yeah. or something like that. And the reality is, it is good for consumers to be aware of sustainability issues. It's good for consumers to demand sustainability performance and give that feedback to um, the companies they buy products from. But all of us have had the experience of being in a supermarket and having two or three seconds to choose between this chocolate bar and that chocolate bar, or this package of meat and that package of meat, and both of them have labels, and you throw up your hands and say, I don't know which right. is better. I want to make the ethical choice. But this is way too confusing. And the reality is we need to do um, what's called some choice editing. We need to do some choice editing for consumers. And when it comes to basic principles of ethical practice like no deforestation and full respect for human rights, we should do some choice editing. Honestly, at the business-to-business -business level, these issues should be solved. Mm -hmm. And consumers should be able to have confidence that when they go to the supermarket, um, every choice is an ethical choice, and they can choose based on other factors like taste and price. Mm -hmm. As you were creating this, one thing you were very clear in saying, we're not here to replace mm -hmm. anything. We're here to, to sort of see what works and get everyone aligned. How did you reach that conclusion that you wanted to be something that explicitly didn't try to replace existing efforts? Many members of our coalition are already involved in many sustainability initiatives and see the ones they're involved in as accomplishing a lot, um, having a lot of positive impact, and being partial solutions. <laughs> so we don't want to get rid of them. Right. Uh, if we were to add something new, that would only increase the noise and confusion. So we really came in um, with an aim toward fostering greater alignment so the initiatives could all fit together better and also filling gaps where there were there's not clear guidance on a particular topic or there might be a part of the world or a part of a supply chain where there isn't an applicable tool. As I mentioned, the framework provides an overall umbrella mm -hmm. under which that contextualized solution can be developed. And I think it's really putting into action the idea that we need to think globally. Mm -hmm. We need to have an overall idea of what we want to achieve. 
but we need to act locally. And the solutions do need to be contextualized, but they need to be linked back to this big picture of what we want to accomplish and what good looks like. Okay. I've been in this ecosystem of NGOs for almost 15 years now, and one thing I'm trying to communicate through Bionic Planet is how these groups interlink. You've seen here how this series investor network contracted Supply Change to conduct the analysis that informed their investor brief, which in turn is designed to drive alignment under the accountability framework. If you like this kind of insight, if it helps you to make sense of a world that often seems opaque and you want more of it, then you can help me produce more and better episodes of Bionic Planet by giving me a solid five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That matters because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to fix this mess. We can do it if we all work together. Now, if you really want to get more Bionic Planet, you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet, where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. I'm working on another episode and more articles built around efforts to move the accountability framework forward. One of those is the World Resource Institute's Global Forest Watch, which is an absolutely fascinating tool for examining the pressures on individual patches of forest. And that brings us back to Jeff. The Global Forest Watch Pro. How do you, do you see that dovetailing with this? Um, or is that just another, is that something I shouldn't be linking too closely? I'm just trying to think of it. It absolutely links closely. And the World Resources Institute, which has uh, developed Global Forest Watch, is a member of our coalition. We've worked very closely with a Global Forest Watch team um, as we've developed the accountability framework. Um, and maybe one way to think about it is when you go on to Global Forest Watch, and I encourage everyone to do so because it's really an amazing view of the world's forests yeah. and change in forests. Underneath those um, amazing analytics and, um, uh, and, and mapping tools are a bunch of details, like what is the definition of forest? Um, and we have worked with them to try to have the ac accountability framework provide the basis for those algorithms um, and also for that tool to be useful for business so that the accountability framework is asking business to do certain types of monitoring and certain types of reporting. Um, how can we link that up to the existing tools so that there's actually a practical way for companies to do what we're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. So any, any closing comments, anything you just want to... So just come back to come back to the beginning of our story. Um, it's been 10 years since companies started setting these ethical supply chain commitments. And it's taken us a while, but we're at the point now with the launch of the accountability framework, uh, with tools like GFW Pro and others, where we have all the elements for ethical supply chains to be implemented everywhere. There aren't really any more excuses for inaction. Um, it's time now for companies that share the commitment of our coalition to safeguard the Earth's climate, its biodiversity, and the rights of all people 
um, to step up and act and implement these practices across their entire business. And we hope the framework uh, will help them in that effort. Jeff Milder of Rainforest Alliance and the Accountability Framework closing out this episode of Bionic Planet. Remember, if you want to get more and better episodes, you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet, where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick, coming to you this week from Bonn, Germany. Thanks for listening.